This is the Frontier Podcast, powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. Hey everyone, Joseph here, producer with the Frontier Pod, to tell you about a super exciting and informative event that we've been working on behind the scenes to share with our community. On Wednesday, August 28th at 11am, Gun.io and Raygun are teaming up to bring you a webinar where we'll go over practical tips to building high-performance software teams. Our presenters, Dave Swirsky, who is a lead engineering manager and author, and Jeff Langston, freelance software engineer and consultant, will be tackling this issue from both sides of the equation as a team leader and a freelance engineer. They're going to look at what to look for when hiring new talent and how to achieve that best culture fit, some software monitoring tips that empower your team, and some proven mechanisms that drive positive behavior, ownership, and increased customer satisfaction. They're also going to look at how to speed up the onboarding process so your new hires have the info that they need and are on the same page with the wider team. And hey, can't make it on August 28th at 11 a.m.? Totally cool. We got your back. Register anyway, and we'll send you the recording. You can find all the information and register at bit.ly slash raygunwebinar. That is bit.ly slash r-a-y-g-u-n webinar. Or you can find those links in the show notes. That's enough for me. Let's get on with the show. Tim Anderson is the Vice President of Technical Operations at Casasa, a community financial institution fintech company. Casasa offers a suite of checking account products for which Tim runs the implementation and support team, making sure customer data is onboarded properly. When you serve a conservative customer base, the day-to-day isn't necessarily a cutting-edge revolution in technology. It's not about the fintech disruptive hype cycle in an industry that's by nature conservative. What's more, disruption doesn't have to feel like something different. It has to feel like something familiar. Consumers compare mobile app experiences to Uber and Lyft. More staid industries need to be cutting edge, but relative to something the customer already uses and understands. Consumers want friendly and personalized service across channels that's convenient, personalized, and consistent. Modern technology helps us get there. Tim, great to have you here, man. Thanks for joining us. Ledge, thank you for the invite, man. I appreciate it. Can you give a two or three minute intro, you know, of you uh, and your work just so the uh, listeners can get to know you? Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, I, uh, I work for Kasasa. Uh, we are a community uh, financial institution, fintech company, really geared towards community financial institutions. Uh, we work with a lot of the, the credit unions and uh, banks in, in throughout the country. Um, we have a suite of checking account products. We have, um, you know, our Kasasa loan product we just put out. But, um, uh, yeah, that's what we do. Uh, I've been here for about eight years now. Uh, I work with our implementation and support team. So once customers come on, it's our responsibility to make sure that uh, all their data and everything is onboarded properly so that when it comes to servicing their consumers, they can do so uh, in a way that they're proud of. Yeah, and, you, you know, it's interesting because I don't think a lot of – startups or, you know, sort of small companies really think about like that technical operations and maybe onboarding, you know, there's a little bit of discussion around, you know, customer success or, you know, whatever that is, but is that part of marketing? Is that part of sales? You know, where does that happen? Uh, How does that intersect with the actual, you know, developers and the engineering teams? You know, what's, what's your experience of of best practices there? 
Yeah, so I customer success and, and customer experience has to be cohesive throughout all of those realms. Um, you know, from from product uh, ideation through uh, development, when, when things get built, you need to take into consideration how it's going to impact your clients, how it's going to impact your users, your internal, your external users, your consumers. Uh, and, and you've got to take that all the way through. Um, specifically now in the the age of, of so much customer data being available and um, a big part of customer experience is that personalized experience, not only from a support standpoint, but also from a usage standpoint point. So, um, you know, from a financial institution standpoint, for example, if I log in to internet banking and I already have an auto loan and you're advertising to me for an auto loan, why are you doing that? I already have one of those. That's not something that you, that I, that I, that I should be a target for. Um, so when it comes to marketing, um, you know, product uh, ideation service, all those things have to be intertwined together. And before we started recording, you made a great point about, you know how like you guys are serving a traditionally uh, maybe slow moving or conservative, let's say, area of of the, of the banking sector. And, you know, that um, it's not the place that you think like, hey, there's going to be this, you know, cutting edge disruptive revolution because that would literally be cutting the knees out from your customer. You know, there's, there's this fintech disruptive hype cycle, you know, narrative that I think is, is maybe not accurate to, you know, the people that are actually doing great things in the space. Yeah. So it's, I mean, a little bit out of that, it is, it is accurate to a point it is, it is very disruptive. The products are very disruptive to what we have, but like you had said, the, the industry itself is by nature conservative. Um, so if you are going to be disruptive in the realm of service or in the realm of product, you have to do so in a way where, um, the feeling that customers get or the feeling that consumers get doesn't feel like they're interacting with something that's completely new to them. They have to feel like they're still interacting with something familiar. And, and when I say familiar, I don't even necessarily mean something familiar to the banking industry, right? Um, so if you were to put together a, an app, for example, to, to interact with your accounts and you're using that app, I'm not comparing that app usage to how good is, you know, a mega bank app usage. I'm going to compare that app usage to how user friendly is that app compared to the other apps that I use. So without you really knowing it, I'm comparing my mobile banking app to Uber. I'm comparing my mobile banking app to, you know, the Lyft to the different types of applications that I'm using every single day and not necessarily just in that fintech space. So the, the trick is to be able to be disruptive, to be, cutting edge, but to do so in a way that's familiar to your clients and your consumers. Do you have some recommendations, tips, tricks, on, yeah. you know, things that work in that space? Like bring yeah. it down to the tactical. Sure, for sure. Um, you know, one of the things that is most exciting right now throughout um, customer service is, is AI. Um, and whether or not you're using AI in the realm of machine learning or whether you're not using it or whether you're using it, sorry, in the realm of uh, communications, chatbots and whatnot. Chatbots are probably the most common use of AI right now that you see in the customer service world. Um, and if you can combine a good natural language processor um, to figure out what your customers are asking for and you can do it in a way where they're not feeling like they're talking to a robot, that's how you can really win over your customers. Because um, if you think about what customers actually want from a service perspective, what they want is they want friendly, personalized service. They want it across multiple channels. They want it to be convenient. They want it to be quick and consistent. You know, so whether or not I 
text you, I call you, I chat you, I interact with my portal online. They want that service to be personalized and consistent. Um, so AI really comes into play there, and, and that's something that, uh, that personally I'm really excited about being able to continue uh, implementing. So. What's the difference? Like, how does how does that work? Where you know some of those things you just know, like this is a robot, and and some you know, like hey, I have a live person who doesn't really know what they're talking about. Uh, you know, so there's this whole Turing test sort of evolution that's going on. Um, but you know, sometimes the robots are. are really getting so good that, you know, I kind of can't tell. Uh, what What is that? Like, where's that coming from? So that's, I mean, first of all, the robots that are really good are really good. Like I, I earlier today, my phone rang from an unrecognized number. And as soon as you pick it up, if you hear, you miss the beginning of the sentence, you can tell by a tone, it's just not a person. Like it's almost getting to the point where it's offensive because now you just wasted my time. Um, so um, if difference is understanding where those limits are. Um, and especially in, in the industry we work in where, you know, like we were saying, it's a very kind of conservative industry. Um, you you got to make sure that if people do interact with, you know, AI or interact with a, a chat bot, they don't feel that way. And so the natural language learning is a big piece of it. Um, and that comes from big data. And um, it's not something that, you know, you can necessarily build on your own. Typically, it's something that you're going to purchase a vendor for. Um, but there's a lot of really good vendors out there for it. But um, so the difference is uh, whether or not you send a chat that says, I'm locked out of my account, uh, and the chatbot knows, oh, no problem, let me reset your password, or the chatbot responds with, I'm not what sure what that is, you know, let me give you one of these canned answers. Um, and as, as smart as chatbots are, they they can't do human reasoning for diagnosing complex issues. So they have to be able to have a really uh, like a warm handoff process where you can hand it to the right person so you can get that issue resolved at the right time. And some of the exciting things that come from uh, the, the AI involved in that is when it does come to the right person, it can get it resolved quickly, but it comes with all of the relevant information from that existing issue plus any previous issues that are tied to that. So from a customer service perspective, when you can implement AI as a complementary asset to your human service representatives, that's when you get the best benefit from it. So what's just give me a, a rundown if you, if you can, maybe it's proprietary, but you know, what's the tool chain look like for, for your operation? Because you're really doing this at, at quite a big scale and there's gotta be a lot of stuff that works together there. There's a lot of stuff that works together for sure. You, you have to have your systems talking to each other. And, um, you know, in an earlier episode I was listening to, you had Christine Sprang. She talked about build versus buy for connectivity. Um, and so you have to be able to connect, you know, your proprietary internal databases with your, your tools moving forward, your CRM, your case management system. Um, I've got a lot of experience using Salesforce. And for me, Salesforce for case management works really well. Um, they have a, a natural language um processor built into there specifically for chatbots that seems to work really well. Um, you can program a bunch of other things into it, uh, but you do have to kind of program that workflow to the handoff uh, and whether that gets handoff uh, within the system to uh, a service professional or it gets handed off to an external uh, API, for example, that's going to run a query against the database and return that result to the client. You have to have all those workflows built together. So that's the, the tool stack is really what are you going to use from a customer facing perspective, whether it's your customer facing portal, um, you know, Salesforce has got a bunch, Zendesk has got some, uh, there's that option, the chat option, and then also on your back end, what's going to talk to your databases. And so when you guys do custom development, 
is it is it going to be a lot of the middleware between there or, you know, like or custom product development? And how did the two bump up against each other? Sure. So we, um, we, we built everything in-house for a long time. Um, and, and so, you know, our internal data structures, our, our uh, DevOps team, uh, cloud ops, all of our internal stuff uh, is, is built by us. And it really came down to the choice of whether or not we want to build a customer facing portal or build a chat tool or build the AI involved in it, or whether or not we're going to partner with somebody. Um, and at some point you, you, you have to see what the return on that investment is. Now, when you do decide to go with that vendor, um, again, in our choice, we went with Salesforce. When you do decide to go with that vendor, you also need to understand that it's not going to be out of the box. There's going to be continuous development involved. There's going to be continuous, you know, uh, requirements gathering, uh, internal teams. You have to work with, you know, in our side, we have a business process management team that works directly with the vendors that gets requirements from all over. We regularly, uh, you know, me as a representative for technical operations, regularly interact with the product team for how do you want this product to be uh, functioning within market? We work with our product owners, product managers, as well as the developers individually to say, hey guys, this is what the vision looks like. Here's how we're planning on getting there. Let's work together on what the details start looking like now. You run, so you run the support operations, essentially. I'm, I'm curious, you know, so we talked about the handoff between what would be the, the AI to human sort of uh, handoff to, to take care of an end customer issue. There's an additional, typically in support, there's an additional handoff sort of from that tier one customer interaction to maybe, you know, tier two to tier three, where at one point or another, you know, your support person has to go, I'm going to escalate this to engineering. Mm-hmm. And I'm um, I'm curious, you know, sort of how do you handle that and know where those incidents live, and you know how the responses can and should come back to. You don't want to ever put your support operations in in the place where you know, oh God, we have to send it to engineering, and the reality is that you know we really feel like this this thing is going into the black hole. Yeah. So how do you integrate those functions? Well, there's two different sides of that skill. I don't, as a support representative, I don't want to feel like I'm putting something into a black hole. But as a support representative, I also don't want to feel like I'm overwhelming my, de- overwhelming my development team. Because I need those guys to finish working on what is most likely the improvements that are going to start making my job and my life easier and our clients enjoy the, the, the product more. Um, so there's the balance of, how do I have a channel where I can quickly get help when I need it? So how do I not abuse that channel? Um, and really it all comes down in, in my mind to what can you measure, right? And there's a rule of thumb. I mean, we're all human beings. Uh, you know, at Kasasa, we have the luxury of working in the same building for the most part. So um, what we say is if it's going to take you longer to put in a case than it will be to solve the problem, don't bother putting in a case. But if it needs to be documented, it's got to be documented. So um, for us, there are um, subject matter experts on the team where everything kind of flows through these two guys. Uh, and those two guys have the ability to decide when we need to escalate over to the development team. They work directly with the product owners on the team to make sure that either uh, the issue is documented when it has to be uh, or uh, that we can just resolve it quick. But from an SLA standpoint, it's, it's tough because you want to be respectful of the work they have without disrupting the sprint that they have going on. Um, so you end up in the situation where you are talking to clients about, uh, like if I'm relaying to a client where your issue is, we're working with the development team and you end up communicating not necessarily when a resolution is going to be had, but when I can get an update for you. Because 
the concern of this is going to a black hole is also felt on the consumer side as well. So being able to avoid that by over communicating. Um, for us personally, uh, you know, we have JIRA as our case management system for development where things go. We can measure SLAs out of there, can measure how long things take, how many people have interacted with it, things like that. And most importantly, you have to be able to see trends. Because if I start seeing, you know, things coming up around a configuration screen, for example, well, then we got to take that to the product manager and say, hey, look, here's an opportunity for us to invest some time from the development side that's going to save not only time on the back end of support, uh, but also make the experience better for the users. It sounds like you guys have really developed an equal equal love, equal opportunity culture where there's, you know, like a product input from, you know, all the stakeholders. I can remember organizations and, you know, maybe more back back in the day, but you know, that, that support was a throwaway job and nobody wanted to talk to the customer and you know yeah. how things have really evolved since then. But you know, so from an advocacy standpoint, um, how's, how does that happen and how do you do it right? Well, it goes back to what you, the first question you had was how do you tie these things together? And, and the understanding that support is a function of the product as a whole. Uh, and it's a function of how well your product is working in the market. Um, so you have to take that into consideration. Um, how well your product is being marketed. Customers talk to each other. If your product isn't, isn't good to use, if your support isn't something that they want to interact with, they, especially in the community banking industry, customers talk to each other. Um, so you want to make sure that you keep that reputation up. Um, but so how do we interact with each other? Um, you know, we, we have the standard standups uh, regularly. We have representation within the development team for standups. We have prioritization. Uh, about every two weeks, we go through prioritization with the product management team. Uh, just, you know, this, this standard, the standard rituals that are involved in an agile development shop, we just basically make sure that we have representation in those. And, but it's important that representation is great. But you need to have buy-in of the importance, and that's kind of a top-down approach. You know, if 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 the you know if our chief technology officer didn't believe that supportability was a crucial function of the product, then my representation wouldn't mean any more than one more seat's filled in that room. Um, but our chief technology officer does understand that supportability is crucial. Um, we call it commercialization as far as how easy it is to use the product. Um, you know. Uh, usability, UI, UX, all those types of things. Um, yeah, so so it's kind of a top-down approach and just making sure that, I mean, we're all human beings, man. At the end of the day, we're all human beings, and it comes down to building relationships and leveraging relationships. Absolutely. Um, last question, you know, I was, I was thinking about um, – how do you know, like, as a, as a growing organization, when to, you know, start thinking about making a, a full support and customer success, you know, sort of sub-org, right? You know, that, that it's, it's no longer tenable for the main developer to be answering, you know, support tickets. Now, you could go in and out, you know, some people really are advocates of the, hey, you build it, you support it, you know, you build it, you operate it. Um, but you know, what's that tipping point, right, for, for the org? So you could start to leave the engineers to develop product and then separate out that support piece. Yeah, so there's a um, a couple different iterations that products go through. You know, you have the whole ideation phase uh, where you're really just testing this product in market to see if it's even worth building, frankly. Uh, and then you have your kind of 
transformation phase where you have your first few of them that are coming up, you know, you're at maybe 15 to, to 20 or so. And, and, and again, the development team is probably pretty heavily involved in that process. And, and because you're learning, right, you're continually learning more things about your product, you're finding more edge cases, uh, and you, you have to, you have to address those issues. And then from there, you really get into your kind of production mode. And, and one of the things that I believe in, and we practice here is that whenever you do release a new product or you really have to go through three processes, you have to do your first to five, which is going to be real dirty and just figure out if the thing works. You got to go to about 15 to 50 to figure out what are those edge cases. And then you got to hit your prime time. Um, and by the time things get to prime time, by the time you're over 50, you need to make sure that your development team is focusing on the things that are going to enhance that product, not the things that are going to keep the product moving. And so that kind of transformation zone, I think, is where you, you need to make that step. Tim, man, thanks for spending time with us. Great insights. No problem, Ledge. Thanks for having me, man. I, you know, I, I do appreciate the opportunity. I think you got a, a great thing going on, and I, I'm, I'm glad I was able to listen to a couple more of your podcasts and, and hear a little bit, hopefully giving some insights into what the customer support experience is like. We'll uh, help your engineers out. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.